Let's pray. Sovereign Lord, we ask that you would be with us today and that you would help us to learn um, about the process in which the Westminster Confession of Faith and the Westminster Standards in their entirety, the larger and shorter catechisms, the Directory of Public Worship, all of those documents were produced. While we know they're not scripture, they are not uh, infallible, Lord. They are a good summary, nonetheless, of the doctrine we believe is taught within scripture. And they are useful helps and guides as we study your word. I pray, Lord, therefore, that you would help us to be grateful uh, for the men who produced them and to understand the kind of sacrifices that they were willing to make and the zeal that they had for your kingdom and for your word upon which they based all of their, their life, their faith, their doctrine. Uh, I do pray we would be men who were like the Westminster Divines and that we have such a high and exalted esteem for your word that we would want to make it the basis for everything that we do and everything that we say. And we pray now, Lord, that you would be with us and be our teacher. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 All right. Well, uh, first up, we have two individuals, uh, both of them scoundrels in their own right. Uh, on the left, uh, who do you think that is on the left there? Charles the First. That's right, the son of James uh, the First and uh, Sixth. He was James the First, obviously, of England, and uh, James the Sixth of Scotland. Uh, his son was also uh, like his father, a man of very high uh, church views. He was an Anglo-Catholic, and he leaned heavily towards Arminianism. Uh, in terms of his theology. He also was very antinomian in his own personal practices. What do we mean by antinomian? What's antinomian mean? Antinomian? What, what did you say? Okay. Lawless, right. Antinomos. Nomos being law in the Greek. Anti, against. So he was, uh, he was a man who did not respect the law to any great degree whatsoever. The law of God, that is. Um, he was also a womanizer, uh, not as bad as his son, Charles II, not by a long short shot. And the members of his uh, court were uh, prodigiously uh, decadent in their own ways. But uh, he hated a certain class of people uh, within his own kingdom. What were the class of people that he disliked intensely for religious reasons? You would think it was going to be Roman Catholics, but that's not the answer. Hmm? Protestants. Well, no, he, he was technically, he was a Protestant. I mean, Church of England. Puritans. Puritans. Very good song. Yes, he hated the Puritans. Okay. Um, he, like his father, uh, subscribed to the, uh, the belief, no bishop, no king. And so, therefore, he attempted very hard to make sure that all of his kingdom, and we remember that that was the United Kingdom, United Kingdom of what? England, Wales, Scotland, and Northern, uh, well, at that time it was Ireland. It was all of Ireland. So uh, that the United Kingdom was united under one form of government. And in this case, what kind of church government did uh, Charlie believe in? Church of England. Yeah, Church of England, which was, what? No, Anglican, but Episcopal, Episcopacy. Episcopacy is a system of church government that has what? It has... Bishops, okay, so we have king as the head of the church, right? Then beneath him is Bishop. Archbishop of Canterbury. And then we have various other archbishops. Then we have the bishops. Then we have the priests. 
And then finally, with virtually no say whatsoever in what happens within their own churches, we have the people, the people, Uh, priests, uh, fathers, vicars, so on. uh, The local parish priests had very little say, but they had more say uh, than the, uh, the people. Bishops placed priests in their various callings that people did not choose. And um, the priests, unfortunately, that Charles I liked the most were not the most pious priests. What, uh, what kind of priests and bishops do you think he liked? The ones that made the most money. Okay, men of quality, they would call them, yes. But, um, I mean, you've got to remember, though, how, was, how, was, how were priests and bishops paid in, in his time? Uh, taxes. Taxes. Okay, they were paid di- directly by taxes, so... Uh, but no, he liked bishops and priests who were compliant. compliant, exactly, loyal to the king, okay, who pushed the doctrine he liked, who didn't complain about his politics, and who urged everybody to be loyal and faithful to the king in all ways. All right. Now, his choice for archbishop was a man by the name of William Laud. What kind of uh, theology do you think Laud subscribed to? He was an Arminian, and he, uh, he was a very strong uh, supporter of episcopacy. He persecuted the Puritans mercilessly, uh, and he attempted to soften all of the parts of the 39 Articles, which are Calvinistic in their, their thrust. Uh, and he wanted very much to push uh, the Roman Catholic farrago of useless observances, as Calvin put it. He loved... Uh, candles. He loved candlesticks. He loved gold crosses. He loved the uh, the calendar and the observations of all the feast days. So this was a man who loved St. Swithin's Day. Uh, he also uh, loved the screen. They used to put a screen in between uh, the people and um, in Puritan congregations. Well, let's, let me back up slightly. In Puritan congregations, what is central in the congregation? I mean, in the architecture of the congregation. Joy? The, uh, the pulpit. Why? Why is that central? Because of the preaching of the word. The preaching of the word is central in their worship services. Now, in high church, Catholic and Anglo, what he was, which was really an Anglo Catholic, in Anglo Catholic worship, what is at the center? Um, the altar. The altar. Not even, uh, not even a table like this, okay, but an altar. And it was central, and it was also, what did they, else did they do with it? They raised it. They put it on a platform. And you could, uh, one of the other ways that you could tell that you were in an Anglican church or a high church Anglo-Catholic or a Roman Catholic church is that a lot of the time the priest would be standing like this. Why? With his back to the congregation. Because he's presenting the sacrifice of the mass um, or re-presenting the sacrifice of the mass to God. So a lot of the, uh, the service would be done that way with the, uh, the priest turning his back to the congregation. Um, it's very Roman Catholic and he, he uh, actually pushed to change the, uh, the architecture of many of these churches that had gone through the Reformation and that had all of their Roman Catholic doodads Removed, like the uh, the screen in between the people, and the uh, uh, they used to have a rail, for instance. Uh, the rail uh, was where the people would come to, and they would kneel down in order to receive the sacrament on their tongue. And uh, what would the priest say as he put it on the uh, the tongue of the person? 
The body of Christ. The body of Christ. Um, so, right. The uh, so the emphasis was on um, once again on what being central. Communion and the sacraments, the things that the church could do. So the church, once again, is trying to place itself in between the worshiper and Christ, uh, the mediator. So it's a, uh, it was a return to Roman uh, Catholicism. And the, uh, in, es- uh, in essence, what you got was a death struggle in, with the Puritans who were trying to reform the worship of the church. They, they didn't like even 39 articles worship because they did not think it was sufficiently reformed. And the other part of the struggle was with uh, the, these people like Laud, who were trying to push it in a more and more Catholic direction. More vestments, more holy days, more centrality of the sacraments, more objectivity uh, of the, uh, the faith. That, uh, the faith was something outward and external. How did you know you were a Christian in, uh, in Laud's view? Because you had been baptized and you went to communion. That's all you needed. Um, and he wanted men who were, uh, as, they, as the Puritans put it, wooden preachers who would uh, simply recite homilies and go through the motions. They didn't necessarily, these were not men who needed to actually be regenerate themselves in order to be serving. But they needed to be faithful to the ritual. So it was all ritual, it was all symbolic. Now, they wanted one uniform religion throughout all the British Isles. So that would include, what were the British Isles at that point? Scotland, Ireland, Wales, and England. They wanted them all to to be um, observing the same thing. Now, the Scots, however, had embraced and had rigorously embraced what? Presbyterianism, right? Oh, no, the the Highlanders, yeah, no, they were still all papists. But uh, the Lowlanders, the Scots who counted um, in Edinburgh, uh, for instance... We're all uh, uh, we're all vigorous Presbyterians. Um, these were men who had followed uh, John Knox and the Lords of the Congregation into the Reformation of Scottish religion, and so uh, they, uh, when uh, Laud, Laud's plan for them, however, was to do what? What do you think? What did he want to do? Yes, he wanted to move them back to Roman. Roman Catholic ways. So episcopacy, he wanted to go back to what the, uh, uh, the, the Scots would have seen as the mass. All right? Do you have a question there? Or are you just Me? touching? Yeah. Are you bidding on the item, sir? I'm sorry. <laughs> you, uh, all right, next one. All right, so this led to the famous Jenny Geddes and her stool incident. All right. Uh, what happened was Laud attempted to push Episcopacy on the Scots. He essentially wanted uh, a counter-second reformation. Now, the first reformation had broken the power of the Catholic Church in the British Isles. But he, uh, he did not want the second reformation. The second reformation was a further ref- reforming of practice that made them more uh, biblical, that emphasized the, the need for biblical religion. So what happened was he wanted a counter-Second Reformation that would move them in the opposite direction and establish episcopacy in places like Ireland and Scotland. So 
uh, he sent in bishops and priests armed with the Book of Common Prayer to preach in Scottish churches using the Book of Common Prayer and these set liturgies. All right. How do you think the, uh, the Scots reacted to that? Very badly, yes. They, uh, okay, so there was this famous event, uh, and um, this is the English translation in the original Scots. It's very difficult to understand. Uh, uh, Jenny Geddes, who was an old woman, and, and um, it used to be the case that uh, in um, the old cathedrals and the bigger churches in Scotland, the people would stand, and of course the, uh, the preacher would stand in the pulpit as well, but if you were older, what would you bring with you? You would bring a stool so you could sit on it. Uh, Jenny Geddes was uh, an older woman. I believe she was a, uh, what they would have called a fishwife, one of the women who uh, was uh, involved in the selling of uh, fish um, in any event. And uh, uh, she was in the, uh, the cathedral on the day that uh, Laud's puppet attempted to use the Book of Common Prayer uh, to outline their worship. And there he is dressed up in his, his robes and so on. And he begins using the, the Book of Common Prayer. And she leaps up and cries out. This is the English translation. Devil cause you colic in your stomach, false thief. Dare you say the mass in my ear. Um, and she picks up her stool. And what does she do with it? She chucks it at his head. Immediately there's this... Uh, she starts the thing, and there's this volley of missiles headed towards the, uh, uh, the bishop's head. He beats a speedy retreat uh, from the pulpit. And what uh, Charles and Laud find very quickly is that they cannot reform the Scots uh, or deform Scottish religion and get it to move away from Presbyterianism. All right? It is entrenched, not at least peacefully, but because for them... This was a key issue. What do you think they did? They, but how did they try this time? Yes, using force, not peacefully. Okay, so if we can't get them to simply accept a change in their religion, moving back uh, to episcopacy from Presbyterianism, a deformation of worship, what we're going to do is we're going to force it on them by force. But in order to do that by force, what do you need? You need an army. Okay. So uh, they began the process of raising an army. Now, the Scottish response uh, to these attempts to deform their worship, to move them away from Presbyterianism, were to sign what they called the National Covenant, uh, which was signed in Greyfriars Churchyard in 1638. If you go to the next slide. Okay, there it is. The Solemn League and Covenant for Reformation and Defense of Religion. Now, the, uh, the Solemn League and Covenant was slightly different from the uh, National Covenant that was signed in 1638. The Solemn League and Covenant was essentially the same document, but written in such a way as to unify all three parts of, um, uh, of England. Uh, Scotland, England, uh, well, uh, and Ireland, they omit Wales. Wales got overlooked on occasion. Sorry, my Welsh brothers. Uh, but uh, in any event, uh, so this, the idea was the Solemn League and Covenant would be a document that united all of them. This came about at the time of the Westminster uh, uh, Assembly later on. But at this point, this, the National Covenant was signed in Greyfriars Churchyard with many of the aristocracy and the common people penning their names to the document, some of them signing in their own blood. 
What it did was it said, we're loyal to the king and we'll serve him as faithful subjects. However, we are also zealous for a reformed Kirk, a reformed church, and we will not accept going back to Roman Catholicism. It will not happen. So we are loyal servants. They were affirming once again, we're not rebels. We want to, uh, we want to be good subjects of King Charles. However, we can't uh, accept the destruction of our, uh, our, our true biblical religion. And also, this was the critical issue for them. We cannot accept the idea that the king, while we accept that he has absolute sovereignty within the state, we do not accept that he has absolute sovereignty where? In the church, okay? We say that the head of the church is Jesus, okay? Jesus is the head of his church and that no king has the right to usurp that position. Now, from King Charles's perspective, what was this? Yes, it was a declaration of, of treason, okay? Uh, for him, it was, uh, you know, just slightly less awful than the Declaration of Independence when it was signed by the, um, uh, by the Americans. But it was intolerable. There was no way he was going to allow that to stand. So uh, he begins the process of raising an army. But to raise an army, you need what? Money. money. And where does he get his money from? Taxes. And who, uh, who has to vote in order for taxes to be raised? Oh, very good, Bobby. The House of Commons has to vote on it. Now... House of Commons is filled with men who are elected by the people. And the people, overwhelmingly, uh, especially in the southern regions of England, had become religiously what? Presbyterian. Puritan. Okay, so Presbyterian in their sympathies. This is going to create uh, a, a problem because now you have men of Puritan sympathies, okay, being asked by the king to declare war on Presbyterians and vote for a tax in order to wage war on them. Now, he had dissolved Parliament for a long time and said, I'll govern myself. I'm not going to raise any. There were certain things that only uh, Parliament could do, like raising taxes. He said, I don't care. I'll do. I'll, I'll work without them. So the, he calls Parliament back into session, and they say, oh, wait a minute, Bob. Before we even discuss talking about taxes, we want to talk about the reformation of what? The English church, okay? We want something to replace the 39 articles that is absolutely reformed and Presbyterian in its church government. That's what they wanted. Uh, how does Charles feel about this? No way, so he attempts to do what? He attempts to dissolve parliament, okay? To say, okay, this is, this is ridiculous. I, I attempted to get them to back me up so I could wage war against the Scots. Now they're saying, no, they're our brothers. We're not going to do that. We want what they have, actually. They have Presbyterian church government and reformed doctrine. We want that. And in fact, we want a unified reformed doctrine for all of England and Scotland and Ireland. All right? So they call upon the king to create an assembly of divines in London at Westminster in order to work out those documents that would unify all of the, uh, the kingdom under reformed doctrine with a Presbyterian system of church government. How does the king feel about that? <laughs> no way, Jose. 
So uh, he um, says absolutely no to that. And eventually what happens is he attempts to dissolve the parliament again. He fails. They stay in power. But this uh, is regarded by him as an act of treason. And a civil war breaks out. So let's go to the next. So um, I, I wish I could. Uh, I, unfortunately, that should say the English Civil War. There. Look at that. Bizarre. All right. So various areas. This is the, uh, on the left-hand side, you have um, the districts controlled by the king throughout uh, his, uh, they have the, the initial way that the war worked. London was an area that was heavily parliamentary. Uh, the western regions, unfortunately, tended to be uh, areas that were controlled by the king. Some of the northern areas also tended to be those, uh, those, uh, those other areas. Wherever you had people who were more uh, aligned with royal sympathies and, and so on, uh, you tended to have people who uh, were against the parliament. Um, the university towns, Oxford and Cambridge, uh, were heavily Puritan. Uh, believe it or not. Why? Why do you think that was? Theological schools? Yes. Oxford and Cambridge, Cambridge in particular, were the place where the majority of the, uh, um, the Puritan ministers had received their training. So they, um, they tended to, uh, to back the uh, Puritans. Anyway, so we have, this, uh, we have this long fight, the English Civil War, and while this war is going on, the king loses once, okay, and then um, he is essentially, he's held prisoner by parliament, uh, and he then begins to, he finds his position intolerable from his position, so he begins plotting with the French and the Irish to overthrow the parliamentary forces and the parliamentary government. Um, they finally lose their patience with him, and they put him to death. And this begins the reign of a man by the name of what? Oliver Cromwell, Oliver Cromwell who assumes the title of Lord Protector of England. Uh, he was offered the crown, uh, could have been the King of England. It actually would have been, um, and he, you know, he declined it, uh, saying that it wasn't, you know, it wasn't his to assume that particular prerogative. Uh, England would have been a lot better off had he done so. Um, but he did not. Oh well, it, which opened the door for the Stuart dynasty to come back, um, and they were thoroughly unreformed. So, however, during the Civil War, and after the Civil War for a little while, the Westminster Assembly, that uh, Assembly of Divines, met in London. Let's go to the next. All right, it's the famous. Where have we seen this painting before? In the hallway. That's right. Um, the interesting thing is. Uh, from a Presbyterian perspective, it's not the greatest uh, painting on the face of the planet. Why? No, 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 no. It's a, it's a very, it's a very English painting from the 19th century. But why is it? Uh, do you know what it's a picture of? It's the Declaration of the Liberty of Conscience by the Independents at the, uh, at the Westminster Assembly. The man who's standing up—I've forgotten what his name is—but he's making an impassioned speech that uh, church government should not be Presbyterian, that church government should be congregational in its nature, and that what one church decides should not bind, or the, uh, even the majority of churches decide, should not bind the consciences of individual congregations. 
So very congregational, very what we would call it today Baptistic, and it's uh, uh, very it's an independent mindset. So it's kind of funny that so many Presbyterian churches have this declaration of independency within their own uh, halls, but it's the most famous uh, painting of the Westminster Assembly while it's actually working. Yes, Keith, and then Kevin. Uh, Keith points to Kevin. Gonna, Kevin yeah, says. I don't think it was. I don't think it was. That's a good guess, though. Good guess, but I don't think it was. Um, any other questions at this point? Anybody know the name of the room where they're meeting? Joy, do you get the pastor's wife point or no? No, no, the Jerusalem chamber. It's the Jerusalem chamber! One thousand points! That makes you the winner! Show her what she's won! All right, let's go to uh, let's go to the next slide. All right, on the left we have uh, the cathedral known as Westminster Abbey. The Tower, big man. You know the song. Anyway, moving on, and then uh, over. Bobby's on bicycles. It's Philip Nye. Philip Nye. Very good. I just looked at the painting. I know. He just went up and looked at the painting. So uh, Philip Nye was one of the independents, yeah. All right. So that's the Jerusalem Chamber, a fairly contemporary picture. Interesting thing was it is a very small room. But why do you think they met in, in such a small room in Westminster Abbey? There's a feature actually in the painting that will tell you very quickly. Yes? The fireplace? The fireplace! Why? Because central heating does not exist. Westminster Abbey gets stinking cold during the winter at this point in time. Yeah, it's a giant stone box, and during the winter it was freezing. So uh, you wanted a, a smaller room where they could gather and be around a, a heat source and so on. Many, many people have these visions of kind of a university setting where they had, you know, or, or some sort of like Athens legislature with a, uh, uh, you know, the, the round things. But they just pulled up chairs and, and had their discussions in various areas and so on. Um, in any event, going to the next, uh, before they began work, all the divines had to take an oath, all right? They had to swear upon the, uh, they had to swear out the principles that they were going to follow as they were creating the Westminster Standards. And they said, I do seriously promise and vow in the presence of Almighty God that in this assembly whereof I am a member, I will maintain nothing in point of doctrine but what I believe to be most agreeable to the word of God nor in point of discipline, but what may make most for God's glory and the peace and good of his church. So they were declaring that the substance, the, the very ground of everything that they would decide and declare was ultimately the word of God. Okay, that scripture was the ground uh, that uh, what I believe to be most agreeable to the word of God. Now, this meant that they were saying, I'm not going to swear my allegiance to the king and, and put into place what he says. I'm not going to follow the traditions of men. I'm not going to uh, go after any sort of party cause or be a partisan for uh, particular practices. But I will only declare that I support that doctrine, which I believe is taught in the word of God. All right, so the word of God has to be the basis. Now, what do you think the king said to uh, uh, the various members of the Church of England who were invited to come to the Westminster Assembly? Regime? Yes, King Charles. You better not go? Yeah, he told them don't go. 
So a number of bishops, some of them very wise men. Uh, Bishop Usher, for instance. Uh, what's Usher famous for? Anybody tell me? Yes, Joy? Right, so Usher is famous for his timeline, which supposedly goes back to the very creation and so on. It's not really complete, but uh, anyway, he tried. Um, so the, uh, but he, uh, he and a number of other um, Church of England churchmen, uh, particularly high-ranking ones who wanted to keep their positions and were loyal to the king, they didn't show up. Uh, so the, uh, the assembly was composed of men, though, who had different beliefs. But uh, a consensus came about wherein most of them voted for certain uh, commonalities in terms of belief. And let's look at the results. So um, what happened during the assembly was the first document that they produced. Now, initially, they were set upon a task not of producing a new confession of faith, but of doing what? Revising Revising the 39 Articles, okay, the Church of England's um, uh, declaration of, of their beliefs, okay. So uh, were they able to do that? Yeah. No. After uh, a little work, they said, look, guys, let's just start afresh. Um, it's, it's not going to be useful for us to be expanding the 39 Articles and so on. What we need is a, is a new start to produce a more systematic confession of our faith will apply to everybody. And they determined that what they really needed was first a confession, and then they needed teaching uh, devices. What were the devices that they used for teaching? Catechism. Catechisms. Now, they needed a shorter catechism. The shorter catechism was designed for children, and the larger catechism was designed for adults. Right, so teaching the doctrines of the faith. The amazing thing is now the shorter catechism is considered too hard for kids to understand, so we have an even simpler version called the children's catechism or first catechism and so on. So yeah, so uh, anyway, the first document that they produced was the Westminster Confession and then they produced the shorter, shorter and larger catechisms. When they presented them to Parliament, what do you think Parliament asked them for? It's bizarre. They said yes. Okay, so they presented the, just the declarations and they said, no, no, go back and show us where all this stuff is in Scripture. And some of them looked like, are you kidding? That's like the, our Bible supports this, you know, but okay. So they went back and they, uh, they, they wrote in their, their scripture proofs for the, uh, the Confession of Faith. Um, and the Shorter Catechism, the Larger Catechism, I don't believe came with scripture proofs. They were, they were created later, I think by individual denominations, but don't, don't quote me on that. I might be wrong. All right, so Confession 1646, Shorter Catechism 1647, the Larger Catechism, which is just an expansion of the Shorter Catechism, is 1648. Now, how has this affected us? Well, in 1729, American Presbyterians adopted the Westminster Confession as their statement of faith. All right? This is something that some Presbyterians are like to say, what? You know, we adopted the, uh, in the United States, yes, as, the, uh, as their common uh, creed that, that brought them all together. Uh, some, at that time, wanted just what to be the creed that unified them. Anybody know? No, even simpler than that. The Apostles' Creed. Yeah, they wanted uh, the Apostles' Creed. But the, uh, the Westminster, uh, or rather the, the American Presbyterians, the, the majority of them were like, no, I think we need a little more consensus than just apostolic Christianity. So, uh, 
or rather, we need to enumerate what we believe apostolic uh, Christianity uh, teaches. So, um, and that uh, was the case for the majority of American Presbyterians until 1789 when they made revisions. What do you think the catalyst for the American Revolution, uh, revisions was? I kind of gave it away. <laughs> yes? Revolution. The Revolutionary War. Specifically, as we look at the Westminster Confession, one of the things that we're going to see is that there's a lot of ties to which particular institution within the Confession of Faith, Isabel. I'm going to be asking you a lot of questions from here on. So what, what, uh, what do you think is the tie-in? What, what was in the Westminster Confession of Faith that no longer existed after the, revolu uh, the American Revolution? Didn't exist after the American, it existed before the American Revolution in the United States, but not afterwards. They no longer had a tree. Tree, that's right. You're so smart. No. no. What? Yes, Chris? King. King. Okay, the authority of the king had been overturned. And as we'll see, the original Westminster Confession of Faith, uh, when it comes to the civil magistrate, speaks of the king and of his power. So moving on. News. All right. There were various beliefs represented within the Westminster Assembly that don't end up in the Westminster Confession because they were minority positions. One of the most important of those positions was a belief called Erastianism uh, after Thomas Erastus, the doctrine advocated by Thomas Erastus of Basel. Uh, of the supremacy of the state over the church in ecclesiastical matters, okay? So this was the idea that, uh, and this was very popular with parliament. Why? <laughs> I don't know. Because it would have made who the head of the church? Parliament. parliament would have been in charge of the church, okay? Uh, and making decisions um, uh, for them. It, uh, this did not win the day, though. Uh, the Westminster divines were very clear that while the civil magistrate had a role to play, he was not in charge of the church and could not be in charge of the church and was not supposed to be in charge of the church. Just as, for instance, Parliament was not also supposed to be in charge of what other organization or divine institution? Marriage. Well, marriage produces what? What do you get out? The family. Okay, so the parliament was not supposed to be in charge of the family. He was supposed to be in charge of the family. The husband, right. So the father is supposed to be in charge of the family and so on. Um, but uh, so Erastianism, there were Erastians. There were also, as we've discussed before, that independence who didn't believe that, uh, that you should have church courts. They only believed there should be individual sessions within uh, churches, uh, pastors, and then elders and deacons within, and that each congregation was, in essence, independent and should have liberty of conscience. So moving to the next. All right, so we're going to talk about differences between the 1646 and 1788 Westminster Confessions. Now, the Westminster Confession, as it was adopted by 1788, adopted by who? Americans, okay. Yes, now, what branch of the church are we part of? What branch of the church? Yes. Presbyterian? Jesus. We're Jesus Christ? <laughs> That's true. We're, we're Reformed, yes. Let's be more specific. Presbyterian? We're ARP. Okay, we're Presbyterian, and we're specifically ARP, Associate Reformed Presbyterian. 
Okay, the ARP um, was not part of the, the revisions that we're talking about. We're talking about the mainstream of old school Presbyterians, okay, in both North and the South at this point in 1788 when they made this revision. The ARPs and the Reformed Presbyterians were a much smaller group at this point in time, but they were independent. Um, also, we need to remember that the Reformed Presbyterians, the RPC, uh, or the, the forerunners of what became the RPCNA, the Reformed Presbyterian Church in North America, who, what's their big distinctive, incidentally? RPCNA. Exclusive Somnity, okay. They still to this day maintain the old version. Okay, with the king and all of that stuff. I, you know, I'm, I'm always kind of spellbound when I think about that, but in any event. Um, <laughs> what we need here in America is a king. <laughs> so, me, no. So, uh, let's talk about the differences between the 1646 and, and I, I, if there's an RPCNA person right now, they are enraged, I guarantee you, with me, me making that comment, and I apologize, I'm so sorry. Anyway, uh, these are the differences between the 1646 and 1788 uh, Westminster Confessions. Um, who would like to read? Give me a, give you an opportunity to read here. Anybody? Okay, Rhoda. Although the Westminster Assembly resolutely excluded from their confession all that they recognized as savoring of Arastian error, yet their opinions as to church establishments led to views concerning the powers of civil magistrates concerning religious things which have always been rejected in America. Hence, in the original Adopting Act, the Synod declared that it did not receive the passage relating to this point in the Confession, quote, in any such sense as to suppose the civil magistrate hath a controlling power over synods with respect to the exercise of their ministerial authority, or power to persecute any of their religion, or in any sense contrary to the Protestant succession to the throne, of Great Britain. Okay, so he's beginning to uh, enumerate the fact that originally, when they uh, produced the Adopting Act, and they adopted what? What did these guys adopt in 1729? The Westminster Confession of Faith, okay, that they did not believe that the power to call synods, now, um, we would call it the, the General Synod. What does the PCA or the OPC call it? General the General Assembly. These are the uh, these are the Jerusalem assembly kind of things, the meetings of the church where we all get together and make the big decisions, that they didn't have the power to do that kind of thing. So moving to the next. Yikes. Who wants to read the second part? Go ahead. And again, when the Synod revised and amended its standards in 1787 in preparation for the organization of the General Assembly in 1789, it took into consideration the last paragraph of the 20th chapter of the Westminster Confession of Faith, the third paragraph of the 23rd chapter, and the second paragraph of the 31st chapter, and having made some alterations, agreed that the said paragraphs as now altered be printed for consideration. As thus altered and amended, this confession and these catechisms were adopted as the doctrinal part the Constitution of the Presbyterian Church in America in 1788, and so stand to this day. Now, they made, the big change that they made was they took out the, uh, the role of the king in setting what the church does, in calling uh, the assemblies, and in persecuting or prosecuting heretics. Okay, so they said the king, uh, the civil magistrate, has no role in persecuting heretics. 
They said that the role of the civil magistrate, as far as the church is concerned, is to ensure freedom of conscience, freedom of religion, and that no people be persecuted or molested for their religious beliefs. All right, so they said that uh, the, uh, the magistrate should not give preference to any denomination, any Christian denomination, uh, but should instead ensure that all Christians had liberty of worship and were able to worship God according to their denominational beliefs. Now, they were very zealous to make sure that, uh, that it said that no denomination would have predominance or the magistrate would not be able to push one uh, denomination over others because they were afraid which denomination would gain ascendancy. No, no, not the Catholics. Anglican? No. No. The Episcopalians again. Okay, so the Episcopalians had had, the, uh, had, had predominance uh, before the Revolutionary War and they were afraid that they would, uh, they would simply reassert uh, their predominance once again. Because in many cities, they had the largest churches, and historically, they'd had the most support from the local governments. And so they were afraid that they would simply reinsert themselves uh, in that position. Sol. Well, you've got to remember the Church of England has who is And the Roman Catholic Church has the Pope. Huge differences in doctrines. Uh, most Episcopalians also are low church Episcopalians, not the Anglo-Catholic Episcopalians. So they believe in, in rites and ceremonies and feast days and things like that. They do not believe uh, necessarily that the, uh, uh, that the mass should be celebrated. They don't believe in transubstantiation and, and things like that. Yes. So did the English monarchs have the ability to just dump the church because they don't believe in Christianity anymore, basically? Well, they're in a very difficult position. The last sovereign um, who uh, went through a coronation was who? Elizabeth II. Elizabeth II, as a matter of fact. And she was declared at her coronation to be vis-a-vis -vis the church, defender of the faith, okay? and the head of the Church of England, nominally, although who actually makes all the decisions, really? The Archbishop of Canterbury and the, uh, the Council of, um, of, of Bishops at Lambeth uh, make most of the decisions. But the, uh, the issue is now, well, functionally, Prince Charles is a Buddhist. So he's asked if he is ever coronated that he would be declared defender of faith, generally, not the faith. So, you know, belief in whatever uh, is what he wants to change it to. So it's going to be interesting, yes, when you have um, a, a functional Buddhist being the head of the... But, I mean, it would be even more, uh, it would be even more funny if... Uh, what's his name? made the pro-abortion speech at the UN recently. Um, not William, his... his uh, Harry! Harry and Megan became the church of England. That would be hilarious. <clears throat> no in a very non-hilarious way. Moving on. All right, so let's go to the next one. All right, so now we're going to start. Go ahead and turn in your hymnals to page 919. We've done all that history just to give you uh, a background to what we're gonna be studying. Now we're gonna get into the heavy theology. No more easy stuff. Okay. 
All right, so 919. Now, you will see, Rhoda, what is the uh, title for chapter 1? Of the Holy Scripture. Of the Holy Scripture. Now, um, how many of you sat through our presentation on the Belgic Confession? Okay. Did the Belgic Confession start with the Scriptures? No. Interestingly enough, the Belgic Confession starts with the doctrine of what? God. All right. God precedes the scriptures, obviously, right? Okay. Truth. Yes, it does. All right. But the question remains, how do we know about God? Through the scriptures. If we want salvific knowledge of God, we have to look to the scriptures. Now, uh, Alan, is the scripture the only place that I can learn anything about God? No. Where else can I learn stuff about God? All right. So there is there is what what do we call it there? You you uh, you mentioned that uh, Nick. General revelation. General revelation. We don't want uh, Colonel cogitation. We go directly to general revelation. Um, <laughs> sorry. Anyway, um, I know. Uh, <laughs> general as opposed to special revelation. Special revelation is what we find in scripture. General revelation is what we find in. In the world, okay, the universe that God has created. Because we believe that God created everything. If it exists, God created it. And all of it tells us something about God, as we'll see. But it does not. The world doesn't give me enough information by itself, does it, to be saved? No, it does not. Okay. All right. So um, the, uh, the question there was most Reformed confessions of faith start with the chapter on God. The Westminster Confession of Faith starts with the chapter on Scripture. Why do you think that is? Joy. Because that's the means by which God has chosen to reveal himself. Right. If we want to have true knowledge about God, who he is, and we want to know what to believe, all right, then we need to look at uh, special revelation. So we start with scripture. What do we believe about scripture? What do we believe about the primary source where we learn about God and theology? Theology is, is a big word, but what does it really mean? Yeah, the, the study or the science of God, really. All right, so um, two different ways that God reveals himself to mankind, general revelation and special revelation. Uh, we're going to be looking at what the Westminster Confession says about special revelation, where we learn the truth about God. Let's go to the next one. All right, so Westminster Confession of Faith 1.1. Let's go ahead and read it before we do. Uh, we read that particular slide. So you guys have got your, your hymnals open, right, to the right place. Who would like to volunteer to read 1.1 for us? Got to have a hand. Okay, son. Okay, excellent. Thank you, Son. 
All right, so what we, uh, we see there is that um, there's three essential declarations that are going to be made. Uh, the first deals with um, the, the kind of information that we can get from nature, uh, what it can do and what it can't do. The second, where God began to fill in the blanks and tell us what nature doesn't. And then what happened to the original means by which God transmitted true information to us and how that changed. Okay, so this section asserts um, that a knowledge of the existence of God and a number of his perfections is attainable by the light of nature and the world of creation and providence. We're going to see some scriptures in a little while that uh, make that assertion plain. Secondly, that the light of nature is insufficient to give fallen men that knowledge of God and of his will which is necessary unto salvation. In other words, can I look at the stars? I can look at the stars and realize there's a God, right? But I can't look at the stars and figure out how to be saved by that God. Yes? Right. Okay. Uh, that God has been pleased to grant to his church a supernatural revelation of his will, that this revelation has been committed to writing, and that the Holy Scripture is most necessary, the ancient modes of God's revealing his will unto his people being now ceased. Okay, in the modern American church, which of those statements is the most controversial? Four. four. Why is four controversial? Not just prophecy, words of knowledge, um, you know, uh, tongues, all sorts of uh, manifestations of God's, uh, uh, God's power. All right, so let's go to the next. All right. So let's talk about the differences between general and special revelation. Uh, who would like to read uh, part one? Up there. We've already, yeah, go ahead. Although the light of nature and the works of creation and providence do so far manifest the goodness, wisdom, and power of God as to leave men unexcusable, yet they are not sufficient to give that knowledge of God and of his will which is necessary unto salvation. Okay, so... Who would like to read Psalm 19, verses 1 through 3? Who volunteers? Who, who? Okay. And then um, somebody else open to Romans 1, 18 through 21. I have Psalm 19. Okay, go ahead. To the chief physician, a psalm of David, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows his handiwork. Day unto day utters speech. Night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. All right, so that indicates that God, a knowledge of God is available to who? Everybody. Everybody. All right. If you have eyes to see, then you can see God's wonders in creation. Go ahead, Alan. No, just a comment. I was, uh, I think we're Mm-hmm. Third, maybe not so much, but scripture, and with Wesley, uh, scripture was primary, but in an uh, experience, and my discipline in, in college was physics, but uh, our reason, the, the third of those, but, and, and actually, at the time, that uh, Psalm 19, verse 1 came to mind, if you look at the creation of the universe, and then you look at the, the universe itself, it's so complicated, but yet so orderly. Mm-hmm. A person would have to come to the conclusion that it was created by an intelligent being. Well, you know, that reasoning, I think, would just 
Right. Um, we, however, are so determined not to allow there to be a creator, an intelligent designer, what obviously is a design system, that we've gone to ridiculous lengths. Uh, a number of men have uh, made it very clear that it's impossible that the universe and everything within it, mathematically, simply mathematically impossible that the universe as it now exists could have probability-wise come into existence by chance. There are just too many chances. So what do they do to get around that? They create the... Is there any grammar? The universe is God. It's uh, secular reasoning. Well, okay, the eternal universe, but yes. I think you're thinking about a multiverse. The multiverse, okay. There are literally billions of universes out there that failed, okay, that didn't get them all right. We're just living in the one part, the one part of the multiverse where all of these amazing coincidences came together in exactly the right way. But other mathematicians have thrown even more monkey wrenches into that um, and shown that mathematically it's also impossible for the chain of causes and effects to uh, have happened in the amount of time uh, that they posit. It's just, it's not enough time for them all to have come to place. Uh, Fred Hoyle, uh, what do we know Hoyle for mostly? Uh, right, the uh, rules of games, right? Um, it was a mathematician. He, uh, he said the idea of um, the perfection of the universe coming about by chance, as it is, is mathematically less possible than a hurricane, not a hurricane, rather, a tornado going through a junkyard and assembling two fully working 747s. <laughs> so um, it's just, it's, it's mathematically, it's impossible. Uh, for chance and time by themselves. So, but we know if you got a jar full of nothing and you leave it on the shelf for tr a trillion years and you come back, what have you got? Nothing. Nothing. Alan. Yeah. Really, along with that, and what we're saying is here, it's almost like the, the people who want to try to deny God, they just go to all kinds of contortions to try to do that. Dr. Stephen Hawking mm -hmm. was one that really kind of amazed me in that he came to the really logical <laughs> Right, that's one of the reasons why the whole computer model is now um, that this is just a simulation that we're living in the middle of. That's become very, very, they'd rather have the, uh, we've, we've gone through panspermia and now the matrix model is, is gradually growing in, uh, in favor. So, yes, Nick. Panspermia is the idea that aliens came to the United States and they seeded the planet with DNA or terraformed it and then seeded it with DNA. They, put, they set everything up. These aliens are the replacement for God. So, dang. The what? Yeah. But yeah, because it begs the question immediately who created the aliens? Other aliens! Right. An infinite regress of aliens. So. They're, they're trying to, but um, there's uh, a neo-Darwinian fundamentalism that rules the scientific establishment. The moment that you leave that particular reservation, it's like saying um, that you believe that the uh, Earth went around the sun in 1400. You immediately uh, become a heretic. So, uh, yes, Graham? I mean, I, I think it, it's funny to think about the fact that people consider that the 
that the world might be, a, this universe might be a simulation. Mm -hmm. But the fact that that simulation might be flat is inconceivable. <laughs> <laughs> Very funny. All right. Um, so who had uh, the effects okay. of the fall on general revelation? Okay, Bobby, go ahead. Um, the right revealed from heaven against the ungodliness of unrighteous men that was Graham throwing something away very loudly. I'm so sorry. Or what can be known about God's plain or plain adding in I'm sorry. Or what is plain to them? Okay, there it is. Because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been been clearly perceived since the creation of the world, and things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For they, um, for although they have, they knew God, they did not honor God or give thanks to Him, but became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Okay. So there we have an interesting statement. It's not that there are any real atheists in the world. Okay, because what Paul is saying is that both in our consciences and simply by observing the world around us, we can see the necessity that a God created it. And if we recognize that there is a God, what should that provoke within us? Worship. worship, yeah. Okay, this is a God who is good and worthy of all worship. But instead, it says that we deny something. What do we deny, Isabel? We deny the what? Presence of God. We deny God, okay? Instead, we, uh, and we worship, uh, it goes on to tell us how we worship creatures, creations of our own making, uh, men and, uh, and all sorts of animals and uh, <laughs> mixtures of, uh, of them. Uh, so it's, it's really saying that we're not, at heart, nobody's an atheist, okay? We simply deny the God that we know. Um, who's got Romans 2, 14 through 15? Who would like that one? Who would like to? Okay, Dave. For when the Gentiles who do not have a law do instinctively the things of the law, these, not having a law, are a law to themselves, in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts altering, uh, alternately accusing or else defending them. So it, interestingly enough, another part of general revelation that's identified by um, Paul in Romans 2, we've got the revelation that's outside of us, and then he identifies what? Inside. The revelation that's inside of us. Okay, so when uh, we go ahead and do something that goes against God's law, Rhoda, what do we think? What do we feel, rather? Um, it depends on like how deeply we're burying that. The guilt that's associated with that. Right, but we still have that sense that it's wrong. That it's wrong, which is one of the reasons why, when you go from nation to nation to nation, you have, uh, despite you know, you may be a thousand miles from uh, from your original destination or your original uh, or uh, place of origination, yet you'll see uh, a harmony in the moral codes, such that you really need an education in a 21st century um, American university before you'll believe things like adultery is good, murder's okay, things like that. Yes, sorry? Western culture. You know. Western, right. Um, 
So, but for, for centuries upon <coughs> centuries upon centuries, we all understood, yeah, killing babies isn't very good. Um, we, we probably shouldn't do that. Although we are able to, to burn our consciences, aren't we? So we did have nations that where child sacrifice was a positive good, Moloch worship and things like that. But uh, so we prove that um, we can turn against what we know within us. We can uh, sear our consciences and do the wrong thing. Uh, we'll talk about the necessity of special revelation next week. Uh, I'm going to leave it at general revelation, but we'll see what we can't see, so to speak, uh, in the general revelation and in conscience, why that is insufficient uh, in order to save us, why eternity is actually...